As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic this week, Mark. It's a great week. I love it. I don't know that I would go that far. It has been a very, very rough week, but I just wanted to say a special thank you to a couple of listeners that during this time have reached out to us. It has absolutely made the incredible difficulties and nonsense of online board gaming world worthwhile over the course of the past few days. More on that in the news. Wait for it, because it's awful. So we're going to talk about board games here. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why most of it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game, which is Anno 1800 by Martin Wallace. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark? Welcome to Naviri. <laughs> we return to Title Blades because Chip the Third has painted up my figures for me. So we have a nice full set of painted action pawns. And I just love the color palette and the whole theme of that game. And essentially what it is, Mark, is that you're rolling dice to fill out recipes. And everything else in the game is just making that process better, i.e., making sure you don't lose dice, upgrading your dice, getting you more dice. And that's pretty well the game, and I'm happy with that, as long as you go into it and you sort of explain that at the beginning so people don't think, you know, there's a lot there. There's a bunch of stuff on the side. But like I said, it all feeds back into improving those dice rolls. It's like very interesting and cool powers that your character gets. It's uh, all these different skill dials that you move up and down. But in the end, it's all about rolling these dice. Yeah, much like something like Picomino or Can't Stop or any game like that, it, it is very much just about all, all about rolling those dice. And I, I'm sure, given how light the game is, 
the length is correspondingly short. It's like a it's like a thirty to forty five minute game, right? Yes, Walker. That is what we call in ethical circles a lie. <laughs> if you play it solo, it's only that long. Okay. No, it is. It is. It is longer. But I think I really do think the theme pulls it along because you are. It's it's that sort of character progression that you get in all those other games. It sort of has that that feel of you know you're advancing this character, these getting better. You know you're moving the dials. You're looking at you know you get to see these interesting abilities and there's that it's sort of replayability too because you're gonna get different abilities every time. I like it. What can I'm- I tell you? I'm just giving you a hard time. It's fine. It's it, it's yeah. one of those games that's fine. It's just it, yeah, look it, at me. I, I, I am not saying this is a you know the greatest game of all time. I'm just saying that it is a wonderful experience because, like I said, it's got this you know very interesting table presence. It's got this coliseum that you're rolling dice into, and just you know, it's like you said, the can't stop and these other uh, dice miner and the other things where you're like throwing just handfuls of dice. There's just something tactile about rolling dice as well. Hundred percent that, that we love. I'm glad you managed to get it painted. This is a game designed by Tim Elsner and Ben Elsner, and it's published by Skybound Games. Now, you have to say that very quickly, because while you're saying it, they might change the name of the company, so you have to get it out very quickly. <laughs> I appreciate your economy of time. I played a few games of Cascadia. Cascadia is a new game by Flat Out Games. This is a tiling game, which is kind of sort of in the same vein as their previous tiling game, specifically Calico. Both games were produced by the same design studio, namely Flat Out, and both games were illustrated by Beth Sobel, which is surprising to me because, not to pick on it too hard, but Cascadia is not what I would call a visually attractive game. The cards are nice, but they're just scoring cards and they're off to the side. The actual tiles and pawns and during play and after setup and after you've got your little habitat is what it's called. I do not find it a very visually attractive game. I don't find it hideous, but when compared to Calico, which had a number of very interesting visual flourishes and is always visually striking, had these lovely chunky tiles and had a tactile appreciation, I found it a bit disappointing in that respect. But anyway, Cascadia is a tiling spatial puzzle game, and it has a number of elements in Again, in similarity with Calico, in that you have a variety of scoring conditions that are all pulling you in different directions. However, unlike Calico, which literally made me feel like I was getting a headache and managed to impress upon me with each move that I was the dumbest human being on Earth, why did I even bother showing up to place my little quilt tiles? The cats were making fun of me, Walker. The cats were calling me a moron. One of them sounded like my dad. It was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. I'm not big into spatial puzzles. I love tiling games, but I don't really like spatial puzzles that are brutally computationally mathematical like they are in Calico. And Cascadia is much more accessible in the sense of play experience, which is weird because it's more rules heavy. Calico is one of the most rules light games in the world. Take a tile, you place it down, here are the scoring conditions, you're done. It's incredibly straightforward, but but the experience of play I find grueling almost to the point of unpleasantness. Cascadia, on the other hand, is much more easy breezy. You're putting down bears, you're making little formations of those godless killing machines. You put down some foxes, which are kind of silly. Why would you ever bother with foxes? The fish, too. It's elks. It's all about elk, Walker. You need a phalanx of elk, and they will bring you to victory. Or at least that's what I keep telling myself in loss after loss after loss. It's elk all the way down. I agree. Well, you have to get them in formation. Once you train the elk to be in formation, no one can stand against you. It's very simple. At any rate, I enjoyed Cascadia for about two-thirds of the playtime. I think it's a little longer than it wants to be. 
And the scoring conditions are interesting, but they're not as varied as they could be. They all they all sort of have a theme. Every animal, of which there are five, has kind of a theme of different scoring conditions that they can have. And I actually found, and again, I don't know if this is just me, the explanations of the different scoring conditions on the cards I did not find intuitive. I very frequently had to look up in the rulebook what they meant on the cards themselves, despite the fact that the cards have pictures and text and numbers I didn't feel they explained themselves adequately sometimes. And when compared to Calico, I definitely find it a, a more pleasant, accessible play experience. But in both instances, I would much rather play another tile lane game with animals where there's a spatial puzzle and trying to find a good habitat. And that specifically is Gods Love Dinosaurs. I think that although it's a very different game, there's more going on in Gods Love Dinosaurs. There's more player interaction. There's more interesting questions of timing. And I find the scoring conditions to be much more straightforward and enjoyable than they are in either Cascadia or Calico. Both games also suffer from basically being multiplayer solitaire. There's not really much you can do to influence the other player. Sometimes you can also get a really, really lucky random draw near the end of the game. And given how puzzly they are, I find that intersection of puzzleness and randomness not to sit particularly well with my preferences. So I played Cascadia again if someone really liked it, but I didn't. I, I found it overall relatively forgettable. And it makes me want to play Gods Love Dinosaurs again. And so that was Cascadia by Randy Flynn and Flat Out Games. All right, I'm just going to talk about Yokohama very quickly again. Introduced it to two brand new players again. Uh, you know, same conversation as usual. Where can I get this game? They both loved it. They both love the fact, the interesting, you know, mechanisms of laying down the workers and the fact that some of the techs change how that works. So you like get to add uh, workers in different ways. And the fact that there's like this sort of uh, area majority on the on the church and on the on the cargo, you know, you try to get more pieces than the other players. They loved it. Yokohama. I won't go on about it again. Second game up very quickly is So Clover. So Mark, this is a party game. It's very interesting. It seemed there is more ways to make it more difficult, but it seemed seen as we got the maximum score on our first play. I think you know we need to up the difficulty. Ooh. So this game is sort of like a code names type game. You have these uh, sort of four squares and on each side of the square is a word. So you're going to get this hand of four cards and they randomly go on your little palette. So you're going to have uh, eight words around the outside. So on each side, you take those two words and you try to put down a single word that matches those two words together and then everyone does this on their own palette they take those four together and shuffle in one more and then this is where you can increase the difficulty i wish there was a different way to make it harder but the way to make it more difficult is you add in more random cards so then now you shuffle them up and then you just pick a player and you you know flip up all their cards and you just try to rebuild what they had and I thought it was a great, it was a great puzzle. I think, I don't know if it was because the group that we played it with were like, you know, codename veterans. So we just sort of like, boom, 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 done next. And, you know, we, you know, coasted through all four and, you know, got them all exactly correct. Not sure. Maybe we just had easy words, but I still think just the concept alone, I, this would work great at a bar or like a, you know, a very great gateway party game that is so Clover. It's designed by Francois Romain and published by Repo Production. I'm intrigued by the premise of So Clover. I'm sorry. I'm somewhat disappointed it's so easy because one of the things that I like about Just One is how difficult it is. You don't really lose in Just One. You just get the sort of passive-aggressive, hey, great job for a bunch of morons that the back of the rulebook gives you. 
And I, I, I haven't played just one in far too long. I did, however, last week play Codenames. I played Codenames for the first time in a very, very long time. Do you know what I missed most about Codenames, Walker? This is not going to surprise you. The trash talk. Bad, bad, yeah, badgering the other team. Now, badgering how, the other how team, was, yes. How was the group? This was obviously with a new group. How was, was, was this a well-known, established you know, practice in this group? I had to remind the rules explainer just at the very end. It's like, oh, by the way, it is, it mentioned specifically in the rules that the other team can unhelpfully try to give suggestions. And then immediately everyone took to it. Everyone took to it very, very quickly. Even people who are not aggressive or would not go out of your way to harass or antagonize somebody in other games, even if tacking is, is permitted, they would just love finding just absurd, banal little connections in order to, again, play with the words that are on offer. It's it, it's less trash talk and more an experience in free association that also serves as trash talk. So that's what's great. That, that's what we really enjoyed about that part of Codenames. But I was really glad to go back to it after so long, being able to get six people together at the same time a few months ago even would have seemed like an impossibility. And I'm so pleased that I'm now in an environment where it can be done safely. One, I suppose, minor fringe benefit of having been forced to move entirely across the continent. But Codenames is a solid, reliable winner. I was surprised at the number of people who had not played it yet. And being able to introduce it to them was was a great joy. Nothing, No particularly clever plays. You know, I don't think we ever had clues go past two. It was just a series of two clues. But even at mediocre levels of accomplishment, I think that Codenames deserves its spot in your regular rotation. And again, I, I, I love all the, the, the really solid word games of the past few years. Things like Just One, things like Codenames, or even the older stuff like Attribute by Marcel André Casasalamilco. And it is a joy to be able to go back to them. And that is Codenames by Vladik Vatel of CGE. All right, my quick one is Equinox, because I already talked about it last week. We streamed it this Saturday. It was enjoyed by all the four players there. This is an old Colossal Arena game by Reiner Knizia. Reskinned. It's going to have yet another skin coming up. Gollum, which doesn't look fantastic. But uh, we stream every Saturday where we just come on. We play the game. No dancing. No puppet shows. Come and check it out. Now, the actual game I'd like to talk about is Ankh, Gods of Egypt. This is designed by Eric Lang and put out by Simon Games. Now, look. If you didn't like Imperial 2030 because you lost control of your armies, if you don't play well with others, if you can't share your toys like a grown-up, <laughs> then this game, Ankh, is not for you. Because I don't know, I'm sure people who are interested at all in Ankh have heard of this merging rule. I uh, applaud it. It's finally something different. You mm. know, like it's, you know, it's always the same thing, you know, attack and take control, get points. This is something that is completely different and it will, and it, I, I only played once. Let's get this out of the way. Played once, but I, I just the, the feel that I get in my head, how it's going to play out so differently with different player counts. Like with three, there was this close fight and where do I try like, I, I try to internalize with the two players. Long story short, you can tell by my voice, I loved it. They both hated it. Oh. So, um, and I, I warned them about the merge. One of them even uh, sort of did homework and watched videos, and they already sort of knew about the merge. I told them exactly what was going to happen, but they still were not mentally prepared for what was going to happen, where one person loses everything, and they sort of have to play with the other person's pieces, you know, for the rest of the game, which is a short time. 
But what that does, uh, let's start with a, like a three-player game, because no matter the si- the sitting arrangement, those two players that are now teamed up are now going to get two actions in a row. That, for someone who hasn't played, that doesn't really sound like a lot. But what it means is, normally you get two actions, but if you start an event, then your turn is over and you only get that one action or but with two actions in a row that are completely separate, you get to trigger two events in a row. So you control the event track. And just to go on about that event track, it's one board that is one of the greatest things that I've seen in a while because it's got all of the actions you can take. And like I said, you can take two actions, but what you have to do is you have to make sure you take an action that's below the first action that you take. So when it's your turn, it's this crazy balance of what actions to take what actions to take in what order what advantage is that going to give the other players because if the action track gets to the end it's going to trigger an event so you got to watch what's going on there you got to see where the score is loving Ankh, i can't wait to play more because like what i said with a different player count like say with four right you're going to have the two last players teaming up one person ahead and then you have this very interesting person that's just sort of in the middle like okay <laughs> you know it sort of just tries to battle it out you know it's uh, i think it's a great addition to you know a, a new breath of fresh air into this hobby for sure i love how divisive it's proving and i like in many divisive things i wish to have an opinion and try it and see it for myself i have two questions for you walker the first is were you involved in the merge or were you the leading player when the merge happened no it was me and another player that was leading and he 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 got ahead of me by one point. I see. So I was I was the leader of the merge. So I was merged with the lower player. And it was just a combination of the abilities I had just brought us right back up. Like he sort of saw that I had hardly any presence on the board and, and you know, the scores were equal. But the fact that I could do a whole bunch of summoning and protect my guys after the fact just, you know, brought us almost immediately back into the game because... Like I said, since you can get two events, you can also say take the same action twice in a row. So it was like muster, muster, event, and, you know, we were right back in the game. It was pretty interesting. And secondly, Walker, as I recall, you didn't back this project. How on earth did you get a copy? I have no idea. I, I, it was, I was sitting in my home minding my own business, and the doorbell rang, and I went down, and, and Ankh was there. It was like Christmas. I feel, sor- I feel sorry that you don't have a copy, Mark. I don't, I don't know what you're going to do. Yeah, I wonder why I don't have a copy and you do. That's 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 funny. Oh, why did 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 you pledge? I did, and yet strangely, you did. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll be there soon. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to hearing more of your thoughts and developing some of my own. It'll be on its way to you soon, sir. Played another game, a game of Quest. This is Don Eskridge's follow-up to The Resistance, published by Indie Boards and Cards this year. And I've now tried Quest in the Director's Cut version and the non-Director's Cut version. The Director's Cut version is the version that Don Eskridge submitted to Indie Boards and Cards. And the non-Director's Cut version, namely the standard version presented out of the box, although the components for the Director's Cut are in the box, is what they did after tinkering with it. And the non-Director's Cut version is manifestly worse than the Director's Cut version. The non-Director's Cut version is just a series of hard claiming. There's no penalty for hard claiming in many of the configurations of the non-Director's Cut version. So immediately, when you're the bad guys in Quest, you have to think of a compelling lie right out the gate, or you're going to be identified in five hot seconds. 
On the other hand, the actual game that Don Asquith submitted is seems to be a marvelously balanced game of cat and mouse, where both sides need to be very careful about what information they reveal, and is actually tense and enjoyable throughout. In other words, you should play the director's cut version. Quest is great. It is much less intense, very much like the comparison between Cascadia and Calico. Despite the fact that it's got a number of additional elements of rules grit, it leads to a much less intense play experience. And while I really enjoy long, intense social deduction games with lots of data to parse, i.e. the resistance, Quest is great because there's a lower barrier for entry, and I already know of a couple people that do not enjoy the resistance, but enjoy Quest. And so it definitely seems to be successful at catching a wider net than its elder sibling, and I would happily play either any day of the week. And again, I feel just a sense of luxury being able to sit down with five other people, call them liars to their face, accuse them of the foulest deeds of treachery, say that I don't trust them, say that their logical formulations may be valid, but at the end of the day, they're a filthy, filthy cheater, and so I don't have to trust anything. Gaming is what I'm saying. The joy of social gaming is what Quest brings us at. So I highly recommend trying Quest, whether you like social deduction games or whether you don't like social deduction games. I don't think it's going to be as successful as, say, something like Scapegoat at winning over people who really hate social deduction games, because at the end of the day, it does have uh, one salient element of commonality with the Resistance, and that is you do need to come up with an explanation. After missions fail, or even if missions succeed, you do get to be able to turn to the player next to you and say, okay, tell me who threw red, tell me who threw the failure in each of these missions, give me a story, an explanation, a logical account of what has happened. And some people, I think, are still going to really object to that. Now, not everyone has approached that with the same level of gusto in Quest, but no one's really felt that sense of seizing up and saying, I don't want to engage with the data that I've sometimes encountered in unsuccessful games of the resistance, albeit rarely. Uh, Scapegoat, uh, the John Perry social deduction game that we talked about a number of times on the show, has the benefit of the tension of a social deduction game, but you don't get people to explain the account of what happens, in part because you can't just be as open about what's going on. So it's a question of taste. Uh, We now have a number of very quick and accessible social deduction games, and so thus I am very pleased, and I'm looking forward to more uh, plays of Quest. I'm going to try to say the name of this game, Mark, and I'm sure you'll correct me immediately. It's Atelier, the painter's studio. Well, Atelier is how you would say it in French. At- I have n- Atelier. There you go. Thank you. All right. This is published by AEG Games. The designer is uncredited, or maybe they just didn't want to put their name on this game. Weird. So what you do in Atelier, Atelier, the painter's studio, is you roll some dice. And Let me correct your pronunciation, hold... Walker. It's <clears throat> Oh, gotcha. Sorry, sorry. Yes. And you, so you roll some dice, and you better hope that you roll the dice you need, because the dice tell you what actions you get to take. So if you don't roll a five, you don't get to paint a painting. So if you don't roll a five, you know, a few turns in a row, then you've never painted a painting. And if you don't roll a five or a four... Uh, for four turns in a row, like I did, you don't get to collect any paint or paint any paintings. (laughs) So what a great game. (laughs) They, of course, put some sort of mechanisms in, but it's sort of like, you know, beating quicksand with a reed, you know, where you can give up your dice to get tokens, and then you can spend these tokens to re-roll the dice, but by then you only have two dice left, and then... Everyone else has taken four actions and you've taken one. So it did have one interesting mechanism, though, where 
you could take as many actions as you wanted. So when it was your turn, you could use up as many dice as you wanted and then let the other players take some turns and when it get back, back to you, if you had some dice left, that you could use them up. So I liked that, you know, sort of flow. You could see what the other players were doing. If you didn't like uh, the, the paintings that were available to you, you could have sort of just taken one action and wait, wait for the other players to, you know, take up some of those paintings to refresh the you know, the bank, so you could, you know, get a better choice, stuff like that. That was interesting, but just the whole sort of roll your dice and that's what you get. And, you know, here's a odd way to, you know, re-roll or change the dice face or get, you get to have one paint if you roll a six. That's, that's good. It did have some <laughs> interesting area majority too. You sort of sent out these assistants to all the paint stores and each paint store only sold one color of paint. I'm not sure if that's how it works. <laughs> over there but but uh if you had the most workers there then you got to you know bring home that paint i don't know what they were doing maybe it was like this sort of like battle royale fight (laughs) for the paint but it did have some interesting stuff but overall painful you would not recommend i would not say it again for me walker i've been playing a lot of warp's edge i talked about it a couple weeks ago this is the solo game by scott alms and renegade game studios this is actually the second in a series of solo games that renegade game studios has put out the first one was proving grounds by king klenko which i played a couple times and thought was kind of cute and very much in keeping with king klenko's solo slash cooperative real-time dice game family of which he's released several and this is a bag builder by scott alms and it really does play with your expectations about what you want your bag to look like. Unlike other bag builders where you're pulling colored elements in order to satisfy recipes, and unlike other deck builders where you want to ruthlessly prune your your bag or deck of trash, here any enemy can usually be stunned by a crappy laser blast. And your run lasts as long as you're going through your bag. And so the reset is actually a hard stop, and you typically only get a small number of them over the course of the game, and at the end of that, if you haven't completed your objectives with your little spaceship and blown everything up, you lose. And so acquiring trash is often a very, very good way to stall and be able to proceed. Now, sometimes you don't want it, and sometimes it does indeed gum up your hand for a variety of reasons, but that balance is actually, I find, really, really interesting, and a serious change of pace from the overwhelming majority of deck builders or bag builders that are on the market. One of the games that I played this week, I actually engaged with the sort of choose-your-own-adventure storybook, whereby it actually sets up the game for you. It doesn't proceed through a series of linked missions, it instead proceeds through the setup. So, your response to various story prompts might determine what boss you're fighting or what starship you're piloting or what items you start off with or what have you. Normally, this is all random or selected by the player, but if you proceed through the storybook, it can set up for you. And I thought it was clever and cute. It was a way to engage with the universe, uh, a way to give you a sort of uh, pre-done setup without putting all the choice on the part of the player. And I've now tried all four different starships, and I've tried four different bosses, And the amount of variety that they get out of the bosses in the starships is really quite impressive. The starships, in addition to having their own special abilities and having their own damage tracks, some have really good shields, some have really good hull, some have good neither, but they also determine what's available on the market. The market setup is a function of what ship you have chosen. And the bosses really do inject some bizarre changes into the gameplay element. I played against a boss that was actually two flying heads, And which head was active would change from round to round, and that would 
impact how you had to deal with the enemies. It's really well done. I have to say that by a not small margin, this is the best work I've ever played by Scott Alms. I'm not a huge fan of the Tiny Epic series, and that's kind of an understatement, but I didn't know that Scott Alms was capable of this quality work. I've been having a great deal of fun with Warp's Edge. It's really fast to set up by virtue of the really clever component decisions. There are these included plastic trays to arrange all the chips that you're going to use over the course of the game, which for a small box game is a lovely little addition. And since the game itself takes about 20 to 30 minutes, facilitating the setup is of absolute imperative, when, especially considering it's a solo game. And so I've just been knocking them out periodically over the course of the week, and I have yet to be tired even remotely of Warp's Edge. I think this is a winner. I really, really like what Renegade Game Studios is doing with this series of games, small box solo games with an emphasis on narrative. The writing's been okay, but at least it's been getting me into the universes of the uh, applicable games. The same was definitely true of... Proving Grounds, although there the story didn't interface with the game at all. It was just a short story to set up what was going on. And I'm looking forward to the future output. And if this is what Scott Alms is capable of, I'm going to have to try to take a harder look at his other non-tiny epic work. Although, that having been said, he did design uh, Heroes of Land, Sea, and Air. So uh, there's that. Although, of course, I can never remember what order that's in. Was it Land, Sea, and Air? Was it Sea, Land, and Air? Was it... Air, Earth, Wind, and Fire, what, uh, anyway. That is Warp's Edge by Scott Alms. I played a great game called Muse. This is designed by Jordan Sorsen, Sorsen and published by 999 Games. And this is another Dixit-style game, but I think I think this is my, my favorite one so Ooh. far. Because what you're doing in this game is that you are dealt one card and a action card. And the action card will say something like a sound effect or one animal, or what, like an animal word. And so the evil team, let's call them the evil team, has six sticks of cards and two of these action cards. So they're going to look at one of the cards and they're going to give it to the opponent with one of the action cards. So they're trying to team up an action card that there's no way that they'll be able to describe the one photo that you give them. Devious. So they have to... so they have to take the one action card and the one the one photo and say a word and then they mix those all the six cards back together again and then flip them up and their other teammate has to pick out which card it is. I loved it. I had great fun playing Muse. Making it competitive in that way seems like a great way to solve for those random combinations that are that can be too trivial. Yeah, it was a great four player game. I think it would be great with any even number of players. Can't wait to play it again. It was really fun. Do you have any examples of particularly clever acts by clue givers? Someone did a, a, a great sound effect for open space. Oh, wow. <laughs> in in space, nobody can hear you give a clue? And then, unfortunately, there was one that was uh, name a body part. And the picture that he was given had no... Uh, an, the, anatomy? The pers- and no anatomy whatsoever. But there hmm. was a tree... So they said limb. Nice. Which was great, but unfortunately, one of the other cards that they didn't get to see also had a tree. So oh, was, no. Unfortunately, it <laughs> was, was, uh, uh, didn't work quite work out. <laughs> because it's one of those things where, where you look at it and you said, well, why, why would, if it was this one, why wouldn't he say that? 
right? So if there's like if there's obvious other words, then you can clear the. It was very interesting because there was lots of humans and animals, so it was like limb, limb. Well, that's interesting. That could be a limb. That could be a limb. And then I was about to pick one, and I was like, wait a second, no. If if he meant an actual arm or foot or leg, he would have said that. So all of these are out. It's this this other other one that has the tree. Picking that one, unfortunately, was the one that had the smaller tree. <laughs> anyway, that was Muse. Play it again anytime. I wonder if not being able to see the cards against which you will be choosing makes things more interesting or more arbitrary or both. It sounds like possibly both. I think, yeah, both for sure. Finally for me, I got to play Hellboy the board game. After the week that we've been having online, let me tell you, Walker, how enthusiastic I was about murdering a whole bunch of frog monsters. There was some serious gusto. I think the person I was playing with didn't quite understand why I was proposing these incredibly elaborate scenarios. It's like, okay, 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 okay. You could just punch this frog monster in the face, or what you could do is you could hurl them into this room, in which case they'll rebound off the bookshelf into another frog monster, and then I can possess the frog monster, and then it's going to go murder one of its friends. And then the person I was playing with said, is this, I mean, is this, do we really need to do this? And I said, no, but it'll be fun. Are you okay? Uh, I, at the time I wasn't, but I'm okay now. Hellboy the Board Game is kind of sort of a dungeon crawl adjacent co-op by James N. Hewitt and Sophie Williams of Needy Cat Games. And I've got to say, I'm a huge fan of James N. Hewitt and Sophie Williams. They do marvelous work with staid existing genres, and I'm looking forward to their work on Myth and Goal. I'm looking forward to trying League of Infamy, if I'm ever able to get to track down a copy. Uh, James M. Hewitt has also done some work on Blitz Bowl. I'm very curious to see how he streamlined Blood Bowl. And Hellboy is a great example of a lot of creative design work that's gone to it. I was actually thinking when playing Descent Legends of the Dark, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting that the app is doing in order to try to make this scenario interesting, Hellboy already did with the case files. The way a case develops in Hellboy is great. It's not remotely fiddly. You're not tracking a whole bunch of different modifier cards all over the place. And yet you still have a sense of adventure, a sense of reveal, a sense of unknown and excitement that, that, that develops through it. Now, granted, the replay value of a case is somewhat limited only in the sense that if you replay it soon enough to remember how it works, you might try to play it out in a gamey way. But I was replaying the first case here, and I hadn't played the first case in quite some time, and I completely forgot how it developed. And so you're just left with the heuristic of, in phase one, stay alive, assemble clues, phase two, huge question mark, phase three, profit. And so it was a great time. This was the first time playing for the person I was playing with. And I was even willing to play with the non-deluxe version. I have a Kickstarter version, of course, with lovely little molded plastic busts for the initiative order, lovely little molded plastic fire markers, extra characters, you name it. But the base game of Hellboy still has a marvelous amount of gameplay in there. And this is despite the fact, one of the things that they don't manage to avoid is the whole wasted actions problem in a lot of these co-op dungeon crawly things. Not wasted because you have nothing to do. The action mechanism is brilliant in that there's always something for your cubes to be done. But they lean a little bit too hard on stun sometimes. When a character gets stunned, the first thing you have to do is spend two, two of your three action cubes to stand up. They also have fire, and I'm not a huge fan of fire in games like this because it encourages people not to move, and it just encourages a sort of torpor as the game settles down and as people button up. But despite the fire and despite the presence of stun, I think that Hellboy is definitely one of the best of the genre. 
It was a joy to return to it after some time. I lent out my copy in Kingston to the Hanverker. I'm looking forward to, to seeing what he thinks of it with all the component creep involved. And I am looking forward to playing more that there is a local copy. So this is Hellboy the Board Game by Mantic Games, designed by Needy Cat Games, which is James M. Hewitt and Sophie Williams. And lastly for me, my copy of Kabuto Sumo finally showed up. This is designed by Tony Miller and published by boardgametables.com. Allow me to correct you, Walker. And this it was is... just... No, sorry. I'm good. I'm good. I, let me get no, through this. No, no. This is not I, your I'll copy. Let you, I'll let you spread your lies later. Oh, boy. Uh, I think possession is... What do they say? Ten tenths the law. Okay. Um, uh, it had it did everything that I wanted to. It did our first game. I've only got to play it once, and our first game did run a little long because I think we were a little bit clumsy, and it just led to some interesting uh, fiddly bits that made the game go longer than it did because there are some larger discs that fill the board up, and if those are missing, then there's a lot more pushing that needs to go on because the rule is if a uh, disc falls off and nobody it's nobody's fault it gets taken off and put to the side and unfortunately this happened with like five of the medium discs oh wow so the the arena was very bare so it was just a whole bunch of pushing and i think it just took a lot longer than i expected so it did wasn't the greatest of experiences but i'm looking forward to bringing it bringing it back to the table very soon i couldn't help but notice walker that you were playing just the basic intro game yes well we were streaming it so i wanted to uh make it easier i didn't want any like weird you know corner cases to come up so i just sort of weeded out uh all of the the beetles that just got extra pieces at the beginning and didn't have any uh abilities that would you know trigger every turn i find one of the advantages of playing the advanced game of course in addition to the fact that the abilities are kind of fun is that it tends to avoid those kind of stalemate situations because you can invest in a big push and it it helps to prevent things dragging on too long. So, But I'm glad you enjoyed your first experience. I look forward to your later insights. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So on October 2nd at 3 p.m., we're going to be doing a fundraiser for Food Banks Canada. And we're going to be on Twitch. And we're going to be streaming games. And we're going to have people there all of the swag members will be cycling through and i'm sure we might have some other people show up it's going to be a great time come by and check it out and it's going to be a super fun because that's the fun in fundraiser more details to follow we're going to have fabulous guests and we hope to see you there there's going to be a new game by reiner knizia shocking i know this is going to be published by schmitzpiel it's called mille fiori which i think translates from italian into a thousand spaces because apparently the board is going to consist of 110 different specific spaces upon which you can place tokens and they all score in lots of different ways while well, they're grouped into areas and one area you might score triangularly, and one you might score arithmetically. And if this were any other designer, I would immediately lose any and all interest in such a thing. But it's Reiner Knizia, and this is a big box Reiner Knizia game, and I will play any of those. And I'm always looking forward to his future work, and I, I suspect, like many other things he's done, he will find a way to elevate the genre and not make it feel like hopelessly pointless point salad. So that is Mille Fiore by Reiner Knizia coming out by Schmidtspiel. So you already talked about Air, Land, and Sea, but this is the good Air, Land, and Sea, the card game. For Gen Con coming up, they're going to reskin it. It's going to be 
air, land, and sea critters at war. So if historical war games are not your thing, you can now buy a critters at war, which will be animals butchering each other. (laughs) Much more wholesome. I I don't know about literally butchering, but sure. And it's a fantastic game. We we talked about it multiple times. Great gameplay. Nice, fast, quick flowing. Check it out. Warpgate is a lovely little pseudo 4X published by Artem Nichiporov and Wolf Designer, and they are going to be releasing an expansion and a reprint on GameFound sometime in the near future. I'm a big fan of Orkgate, and I would love to see what new content they're going to be able to come up for it, and I will definitely be pledging when in, when the campaign is live. More details to follow. Also, in crowdfunding in a couple days, there's going to be One Deck Galaxy. One Deck Galaxy is the follow-up to One Deck Dungeons, the solo-slash-two-player cooperative dice game by Chris Cheslick at His Mighty Games. One Deck, One Deck Galaxy is going to be a co-op dice game with a sci-fi theme, it's going to account, be able to accommodate more players than One Deck Dungeon was right out of the box, and it's going to be on crowdfunding in the next couple of days. In terms of full disclosure, Chris Cheswick is a personal friend of mine, and I will still be pledging for a copy. Sad news for Keyforge. Apparently the Keyforge algorithm is uh, sick, dead, dying. Fantasy Flight says that Keyforge, which is one of the only gaming things they do anymore is all ready to go with the next cycle with the minor problem that the algorithm that produces their unique decks is fundamentally miscalibrated and it needs to go to bed and take a nap or something. Anyway, there have been a number of of speculations, a number of rumors. There was a now-deleted Reddit post about a week or or two before this announcement saying that a disgruntled fired employee on their way out the door destroyed the algorithm deliberately. I have no basis for believing this is fact, but it is such a delicious rumor that I cannot help but repeat it. I'm a hopeless gossip, I know. But anyway... So apparently Keyforge is going to be on hold for quite some time. Fantasy Flight has been very clear that this is going to be a long-term suspension of Keyforge. And so we're going to have to wait a while for such delightful deck names, such as actual deck names, He Who Always Anticipates Booze, or The Villain That Digs Up Porridge. There's going to be a sequel to Duel of Ages. Duel of Ages is an incredibly quirky two-player game that I've been playing for years in the first instantiation and also in its sequel, Duel of Ages 2. But in an effort to make the game more accessible and available to a wider audience, Brett Morell, of the designer and publisher of Duel of Ages, wants to produce a follow-up, which is not quite Duel of Ages 3rd Edition, but sounds like it might have some elements that sound kind of like Duel of Ages 3rd Edition. It's going to be called World Spanner Factions, and it's nearing the end of its development cycle, and it is going to go up on crowdfunding sometime in the near future. And again, more details to follow. Finally from us, you've heard us talk about how this has been an unpleasant week. In broad strokes, Jeff Bergen, the CEO and president of the retailer slash distributor The Gaming Goat, recently posted white supremacist imagery on a Kickstarter he was running. When called on it, he made light of the issue. This incident is but the latest example of reported behavior on his part that has contributed to making this hobby a threatening space to underrepresented people, including but not limited to harassment, misgendering, and threats. Saliently, Badgers from Mars, the designers and publishers of Regicide, have announced that they are canceling the Gaming Goat's North American licensing arrangement as soon as the contract permits, which will be in November. So Very Wrong About Games is appalled by Bergren's actions and stand in complete solidarity with all those harmed by them. We applaud those who, like Badgers from Mars, have taken a strong stand for a more inclusive and safe hobby despite their prior business arrangements. They have found a new way to hide in plain sight. Pictures, memes, small videos... 
things that many people wouldn't even notice. But in reality, it's a nudge-nudge, wink-wink to their hate-filled, sexist, bigoted, racist friends. And so when they get called out on it, now they say, oh, I had no idea, or it's just a joke, or that's not what it means, someone just made that up, or oh look, the woke SJWs are jumping at shadows again, or it's just a frog. And then they hope they can blow it off and not admit that it's a problem. Well, it is a problem, and when it's a problem that affects our hobby, we will call it out every time. Well said, Walker. That is the news and why it sometimes matters. Now on to our feature game, which is Anno 1800 by Martin Wallace, published by Cosmos in 2020 in Germany and maybe someday in English, maybe someday soon. So Martin Wallace is a long-running prolific designer. He is probably best known for his 2002 game Age of Steam and his 2007-2018 games Brass, Lancashire, and Birmingham, respectively. But just a, a curated list of his most important and influential designs is pretty long. 2004's Struggle of Empires, 2011's A Few Acres of Snow, 2013's A Study in Emerald, 2015's second edition of that same game. We here at Swag are a fan of a number of his games. Uh, specifically, the ones that I would recommend are 2005's Byzantium, 2010's Age of Industry, and 2016's delightful Hit Z Road. This is an adaptation of a Ubisoft strategy game from the Anno series. It is called the Anno series because it is originally in Japanese, and in Japanese, Anno is the word for um, which is the sound you make while considering what to do on your turn. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Anno 1800? In Anno 1800, you're a ringleader of some bizarre black market, or an international spy ring, where you're blackmailing people or paying others off, smuggling goods in from foreign markets, and sending out goon squads to enforce your protection racket. In other words, colonialism. <laughs> what you're actually doing is you're trying to manage this flowing balance between what goods you're producing for yourself, what goods you should produce and make available for the other players, and keeping enough infrastructure in order for you to trade effectively, effectively with the with the goods that the other players are producing. I think talking about balancing these flows is a good way to characterize it. Because the strongest part for me of NO 1800 is the fundamental economy of the game. Unlike most Euro games where there's some production cycle and you start accumulating stuff and you've got this pile of tokens in front of you and you shovel the stuff out the door in various heaping gobs, here in NO 1800, everything is produced a la minute. It's, you produce it as you need it, and there's no accumulation of anything aside from gold, with certain very, very rare exceptions. And so these resources are sort of ephemeral. And you just generate one of a dizzying array of goods. I haven't even bothered to count, but we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of different types of specific goods. Not like, you know, wood and brick. There is wood and brick. But eventually you get to such specific things as you need a gramophone and a penny farthing and a cannon and a fur coat and a can of meat and whatever. Well, not necessarily that specific combination, but you get the point. And why do you need all of these things? Well, you need all these things because at the beginning of the game, you're going to have this array of cards of people that want certain goods for some particular reason. <laughs> and it has a very interesting end game mechanic where as soon as someone plays their last card, then the game is over. But 
that is not the only reason that you want to play these cards because they all give these not only do they give automatically give victory points but they also give you a benefit and it's a wide range of a wide range of different benefits from getting more workers to upgrading workers from being to cull your hand to you know getting all sorts of different things they did a great job of having this vast array of different abilities matched with you know, different goods. I really thought they did a good job. Vast array is a good term for a lot of what's going on in Anno 1800 because the fundamental rules explanation of the game is pretty much just about, you know, the, the core economy. This is how you produce resources. This is how you leverage things. And you leverage these things either to build a tile or, broadly speaking, to play out a card. That's the overwhelming majority of what you're going to be doing, playing cards and put playing tiles, and you generate resources for both in the same way. But because the entire system is so agnostic about what the resources actually are, again, you can plug in basic unfinished planks of wood or an automobile into the same fundamental core elements in order to satisfy these demands, you do get this dizzying array. And so this is one of my my problems with the actual physical version. So, so there's been an official digital adaptation on Tabletopia that was on for a little bit. You can still play it now on Tabletop Simulator. Pre-orders for the North American version of this game, although the game is mostly language independent, have been open for 17 years, I think. Uh, actually, more like two. And... The setup is one thing that gives me pause for the physical version, because you, the first step is just setting out these piles of all these different industry tiles, and Vast Array is right. And not only are they all these uh, new stuff that you can get, but it's also a full set of stuff that you can already produce on your character board, but just produce differently. Right, because every industry tile requires a specific color of worker, usually blue and red, but sometimes the more exotic colors, like green or purple. And so sometimes you're in a situation where you desperately want to build a redundant industry that someone else has already built or that you've already built because your workforce and or your economic requirements want you to be able to activate it more cheaply. And this may sound daunting or weird, but I assure you, unlike a lot of other economic heroes where it feels like some sort of bizarre spreadsheet, uh, the, the player aids in Anno 1800, I think, are more complicated than actually playing the game itself. Because what you can do relatively early on, and I, I found this in my first playings to be relatively simple, I don't know about you, Walker, I could look at, at the most complicated goods in the game, like howitzers or gramophones or what have you, and just very easily just backtrack what I would need to do in order to produce it. It's like, okay, well, I need this intermediate technology, which in turn requires this basic thing, and then I build this, that, and the other, and then I get this good, and then, I'm, then I'll be able to build it. True. It does have that interesting sort of, you know, technological advance, sort of tech tree, sort of spiraling out into different things. And I just want to make sure people understand that you don't have to take all of these goods yourself. We t talked right. about earlier that... You get to use your opponent's stuff at no charge. Well, and and I mean, well, they get they get a gold, but it doesn't. You have to exhaust you, trade. You, you have to pay. You have to pay trade goods. Yes, yeah, for sure. I'm just saying, there's no penalty or or you know additional additional cost for using somebody else's good. Like there are in other games, is what I mean. You're right. It's less onerous than it is in many other cases where you might have to pay points or immediately transfer an incredibly large series of goods to another player. And that's one of the balancing acts that you have to do in Anno 1800 that I think is really clever. Sometimes you don't want to be the one to produce the resource tile 
that generates the thing you need. Sometimes you would much rather your opponents do it because the time it would take you to get to that resource tile is not worth it. Because at the end of the day, the only limiting factor in Anno 1800 is time. If you had an infinite number of turns, you can build whatever you want because the only thing that's holding you back is just how many turns does it take you to get there. But the efficiency demands that you get there as quickly as possible, and sometimes it's vastly more efficient for you to just exhaust a couple trade goods let some, and let somebody else take the problem. But then sometimes, because trading can be expensive, you, desperately, you would much rather have it yourself. So on the topic of action efficiency, they have this interesting mechanic that is called the festival. So you have to decide at some point when to reset your board because you're using these workers, you're using your trade goods, and eventually, A, you've run out of everything, or you need some of those workers back in order to do what you want. So you take a festival action, which just resets your board. All your workers come back, all your trade goods come back, but that's your whole turn. And so it's sort of like, you know, you have to figure out when is the best time to do that. It's also more pernicious than that sometimes because there are some actions which are less, which are superficially valuable, unlike festival. Festival, everyone recognizes festivaling is a waste of time. You just do it because you need to get going. But then there are the three-point cards. So at the start of the game, there are all these cards you can play in order to satisfy them. There are, there are three-point cards, five-point cards, and eight-point cards. And what I've discovered, having played a few times, the three-point cards are a bit of a sucker's gambit. Like, by all means, play them, but only if you uh, know that you're going to be getting the goods exogenously, you're already getting them on the way to something else, and or the benefit on the cards is worth it. Because really, I think the successful strategy in a game of Anno 1800, based on how ruthless the action economy is, is you really got to make a play for those five and eight point cards. There are a lot of ways to play the game, and there's a great flexibility in terms of how many cards you need to get out, and whether you're going to play more for the end game bonuses, which can be different every game. But those three point cards, I sincerely think, can often be a trap. Yeah, I don't want to breeze over those the end game goals because, like you said, it comes from a deck of twenty, and not only are they all goals, sometimes you get this uh, interesting sort of uh, exchange card that lets you exchange some sort of resource for something else, and there are a bunch of different ones of those. And I thought they're all very interesting as well. You know, I mean, they didn't. It wasn't all just you know, well, collect ten fish. This one's ten cattle. It's easy. Right. A, a wide range, a range of like. Interesting end goals. My only one, the only one that disappoints me, and I wouldn't go so far as to suggest to ban it in games, I'm just glad it doesn't come up all the time, is there's one card that gives you a penalty of two points for every unplayed card at the end of the game. And one of the things that I appreciate about NO 1800 is, once again, this sense of flexibility. This idea that, yes, I can ruthlessly pursue just getting these high-value cards, or... I might ruthlessly pursue getting my cards out as quickly as possible to rush the end game. So there's a balance between those those two things. Sometimes you can end the game with 20 cards in your hand. Sometimes you can end it with zero. And that's okay. And I like that flexibility. If there's that card that penalizes you, though, you definitely it seems like it narrows your options. Yeah, it's sort of a double penalty, too, because what we haven't talked about yet is the fact that when you finished uh, playing all your cards, if you were the first, you get a bonus, which is the fireworks. So that's seven points. And then, like you said, if that one end card is out there, everyone else will get to negative two per card. So it's like doubles up on if you're winning, you're very much winning. And on top of that, this is a common complaint about euros of this type, but it's worth mentioning at least. 
this is a game that heavily rewards experience. So if somebody's played NO1800 a couple times, they know how to more efficiently progress through their economy and when to trade with other players and when to go it alone. And so I, I feel that in conjunction with that endgame penalty card, it could lead to some sour first experiences where one player says, oh, I'd better get all my cards out. And some other player might have 10 cards left in their hand because they're just playing it for the first time. Yeah, but the other thing that experience will let you know, too, is how much landscape that you want to have out there. Because eventually you're going to start running out of space. You can place new technologies on top of old ones or existing ones, but you can get more, uh, you know, like more real estate and, and push out and have a, a wider range of different goods you can. And then there's the, the was it, the New World tiles that will give you these exotic goods. And it's it's, you know, well, you know, it's like put here the luck of the new world. Oh yeah! Well, look, that new world just gave you three of the rare resources you need for that endgame gold. Congratulations! Yes, that actually segues nicely into what I don't like about NO eighteen hundred. I love the fundamental economy of the game, but I don't like what it's in service of. It's like one of those games where the mechanisms are great, but all the scenarios are bad, or they don't make the the, the game stand out. It's not crippling for NO1800, but I think it's what really keeps it from being, I think, a top-tier game. Because there's a tremendous intersection between a lovely deterministic economy and sometimes very obnoxious luck of the draw. And I don't complain about luck of the draw always, but it's this conjunction, this juxtaposition that really bothers me. So there are three particular details that I'd like to, to mention about how you can get very lucky or unlucky in NO1800. One of them is the advanced workers are purple and teal. And you can start with easily obtained goal cards that give you purple workers. Or you may not. Having a purple worker is a strict requirement for many, many, many crucial technologies to progress in the game. It's required to build all the exploration ships. It's required to build a lot of the advanced techs that will give you the higher point cards. And so one player might have two or three of these easily played purple granting cards. And other players might have zero. And I have found a very strong correlation between the ability to get out easy purple cubes and the ability to do well in the mid to late game. You mentioned the new world tiles. You may have, for whatever reason, either endgame goal or specific cards in your hand, the desire to produce chocolate and coffee, and you can just keep going to that new world deck over and over and over again at more expensive pulls and routinely be not able to get those resources because, unlike every other good in the game, where you don't have it, no problem. You can't make fur coats? Go trade for those fur coats. You can't make pocket watches? No problem. Trade for those pocket watches. Oh, you can't make cocoa beans? Well, sucks to be you. There's nothing you can do about it other than hope to get lucky. That is obnoxious, and I don't know why it, it works that way. Finally, uh, we've talked about the eight-point cards. I think the eight-point cards are one of the key ways to go and pursue victory. And it just seems to me, I'm no expert on the game, but i played a number of times, some of the eight-point cards seem to require much, much less effort to get out than others. Some of them require many higher-level industries that have lots of prerequisites and very specific new world goods. Other ones just require mid-tier technologies and are much, much easier to get out. So these three things taken in conjunction, they, they kind of leave a sour taste on my mouth, despite the fact that I really like how the game plays. Well, I got a fourth thing I want to jam in. By all means, it's the ex it's the expedition cards, and I have here. Oh, oh sure. Well, you have do you do you have too many workers? Did you make your engine too big? Well, don't fret. We've got a random draw for that. 
Oh, it's true. And some of them require will give you extra points for all those red workers that you were building just exogenously. And then maybe you just draw five cards, each of which need two teal workers. And teal workers are super hard to get. And so you're not going to get anything out of those expedition cards. You're right. I'd forgotten about those. Good point. And I just want to, since we're talking about workers right now and types of workers, I just want to make a point because it, it might sound easy. Well, you got a hand of cards at the beginning. You just play the, you know, you know, build up your workers or your things and play and play them out. Well, every time you get a new worker, you have to draw cards of that worker's color. So you're, you're, you're getting these cards that you don't want sometimes. And well, it's like, well, I'm building this engine. So I'll take the, you know, these three workers now and then big influx of cards, but I'm sure I'll be able to get rid of them. I'll have <laughs> the goods that I, that I already produce and all will be great. And on that note, there is a, an action that a lot of people sometimes forget, and that is cycling your cards. So if you have a bunch of cards that you can't play, you can discard them and draw some new cards and surprise, they have exactly the same goods <laughs> or exactly the goods that you need. Because random draw. On the one hand, it's good that that action exists. On the other hand, if you have to do it, it's not a good sign and it's an indication that you've already been unlucky. And it's unfortunate that the game needs that safety valve in order to work. It just highlights, again, the emphasis on, on random draw. So there's one question I wanted to ask, Mark, is the victory points. There's no victory points tracked during the game. And it's sort of, I'm springing you on this last minute, but do you think there, can you come up with a quick reason why you think that is? Well, because there's no real reason to target any specific player. All the interaction between the different players is mostly helpful. Uh, you know, sometimes somebody grabs that last tile that you really wanted, or sometimes someone runs out a deck that you wanted to, to pull from. But that's not because you're targeting anybody. It's actually very well. That's what I mean. So that's what I mean. So why not? Why not track the points then? If 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 you know, seeing a leader is is no big deal then why not track the points? Because you, like you say, you don't ever really target anyone. I fear that that would make the game involve far too many pointless considerations of who to trade with. Because, for example, you might want to trade for a given good and you know that two or more players at the table have that good. Most of the time, you just quickly decide on the spur of the moment, you do the trade with them. I'd, if, if the scores were publicly trackable, I imagine, although I could be wrong, that people would spend a lot of time, number one, updating the scores and doing so rel relatively badly so there'd be lots of time wasted doing that but in addition every time you had to trade a good with multiple people you'd ask who had more points and give the gold to whoever had less points yeah yeah i see that so i think the theme makes no sense at all i don't <laughs> think there's any theme theme there whatsoever i know most a lot of euro games don't have theme but this one is particularly painful it just it just you know it doesn't really tell you what you're doing or why these particular people need these goods or what, you know, you're actually trying to do in the whole game. Well, we make jokes about what the people actually want. You know, you play a card out and what they want is some canned meat and a beer. And so we start joking about what, you know, the, the Friday night they're going to have. Once in a rare while, it kind of makes sense. And specifically, it's when you play a greasy looking person and they want soap. Other than that, I agree with you. There's no real connection between what's going on. How the game deals with colonialism is weird. I would I would label it as a sub-Fister. So Fister is infamous for making these games about particularly atrocious periods of colonial history and just saying, pretend this is a happy, shiny version where diamond extraction in Africa during the 19th century didn't involve some of the worst horrors inflicted by humans against other humans. Here, you're kind of... So, so, okay, so you get these ships... You outfit these ships with cannons and artillery. You send these ships to the New World, but then nobody's in that New World 
except you're just exploiting natural resources, except for the fact that you get all these new world cards into your hand, and then you try to make them happy. So it kind of repaints the settling of the new world by European colonial powers as basically some sort of a consumerist expansion where we were just going out and trying to give them the goods they always wanted. I don't know how to feel about that. I, I mean, it's just, it's somewhere in the, I, I would say it's somewhere subfister in terms of, of, of its rewriting of colonial history. I think the game in general has a great tempo and flow. I think, you know, everyone does their one action and it goes around the table. I really wish, and I really think it doesn't overstay its welcome. I wish we had time. That last game we played, it was a three-player game that I think we got done in like 30 minutes. Oh, it was more than 30 minutes, but yes, it can go relatively quickly. The, the pacing of the game is largely player-determined, because as you said, the game ends whenever, when, when one player has played all of their cards, and you can decide when to get more cards by doing a variety of different actions. If you want the game to, to last longer, you can kind of do that. If you want to rush the game, you can do that. That's one of those areas of flexibility that I quite like about NO1800. I feel that your starting hand has a little too much importance. Like you might, like we've already sort of talked about, you might get those purple resources. You might get a bunch of cards that all have the same resources, so it's easy to fulfill them. I just think that there's too much emphasis on that starting hand. I agree. I like it when there's a series of recipes that you can go fulfill, but a large majority of your points in Anno 1800 tends to come from these recipes that are just pulled from these random decks. And the opportunity for synergies or the opportunity for necessary prerequisites that the game is just going to hand you for later things is just too high. And then there's trying to remember what, ev what text everyone has. Like sometimes it's, it's you remember because you've used it already, but you know, Figuring out what everyone has sometimes can be a pain. I was really worried about that, but I, I that never manifested for me. Because worst case scenario, all you need to do is check the board and see if there are any tiles missing of that tech. And then just say, who produces fur coats? Who produces work uniforms? And then someone will happily chime up and then say, okay, get a gold. And so in practice... I found that actually worked really well because I th initially, uh, like, I, I can't stress enough. When you first see the board and you see all these tactiles and you see all the profusion of goods, it looks like it's going to be a usability nightmare, but it really isn't. It flows really well. It's very easy to know what you produce and find out what other people produce. And it's shockingly easy to work your way up the little tech tree. True. Well, that's the, that's what I was talking about, the tech tree. I, I, it's not so much remembering on your turn, what everyone has, but when you're trying to figure out, you know, five turns in a row, it's like, I need this, then this, and this. And then sometimes you get caught up getting all those things yourself and you forget that, you know, well, this person had this step oh, and sure. that person had this step. And I could have skipped those three steps and then, and just gotten what I needed almost immediately. Well, that's one of those areas, again, the sort of balancing acts that you need to do in order to play well in Anno 1800 that I kind of appreciate. Sometimes you want to take advantage of somebody else's economy. Sometimes you want to make your own economy strong. And figuring out that balance and being opportunistic in that right way, I think, is one of the positive trade-offs. I think that's all I got pretty well. I, like I said, I got setup was brutal. This game's hard to get. And one thing I've read, upgrading workers. We talked about that. The fact that the purple ones are so hard to to uh, get, because and you might get the cards. But upgrading those workers was like a, a, a four-step process where you needed, like, you know, five or six different rare goods. And it's like, oh, and after you've done all these things, here's your one purple cube. Congratulations. Oh, the game's over. Thank you. And some other jerk got their purple cube just from playing the card. Yeah, I agree. Yep. 
fundamental core engine, the way the economy works, a lot of the subtle trade-offs involved, the pacing, I really, really enjoy. I think Anno 1800 is a very clean game from a designer that is normally not known for clean economic games. Martin Wallace games almost always have rough edges, that one weird action that doesn't quite work right, that action that nobody ever takes, the weird corner case that exists just because the development of Birkenhead was just really, really weird during the Industrial Revolution and requires three paragraphs of rules and five pages of rules questions on Board Game Geek. No. eighteen hundred is definitely not any of those things. It looks infinitely more daunting than it is, but it's very, very straightforward and clean. And my first two playings of the game, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But every time I play No. eighteen hundred, every time I come back to it, those card draws bother me more. The new world tiles bother me more. The the, the requirements for playing out those eight point cards bother me more. And so ultimately, I wish that something that this engine had been leveraged in favor of something else. Yeah, I enjoyed all my planes. I would, I'd gladly play it. I would never choose to play it. And my pie rating for Anno 1800 is water pie. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Important news, if you stuck with us this long. We are going to have, wait for it, a website on the World Wide <gasps> Web. We are now going to be, as of like 1996. They can, like, they can click the mousey thing. They can click the mousey thing. the lights things. will, will blinky blink. With hyperlinks and web zones. Check us out, sowronggames.com. You can find a whole bunch of information about the Swag Extended Universe or Swagoo. You can find out about our editorial policies or all manner of other things. You can check out our past episodes. All manner of exciting things at sowronggames.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.